With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. You know, you go through the seven stages of anger and denial. It was this like crazy stressful point of having literally like just quit my job and not necessarily like burned bridges, but all right, I'm going to make a go of this as a full-time entrepreneur. And 80% of the traffic, 80% of the revenue is gone in an instant. This is Finding Founders, a podcast showcasing the vibrant entrepreneurial spirit of Los Angeles and our journey to find the founders responsible. I'm Samuel Donner, and today on the show, we talk to Nick Loper, founder of Side Hustle Nation. What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because building assets is fun. This week, I'm excited to introduce the Side Hustle of Public Domain Publishing. We're exploring a new way to let customer demand drive your direction. Today, we're talking about free money, what it is, why it exists. Side Hustle Nation is a business podcast, but it's also more than that. It's a lifestyle, a way to break the chains of the typical nine to five. It doesn't talk about giant VC-backed startups trying to IPO. It's a bit simpler and more attainable. But long before he became the side hustle guru, he based his identity around academia. I don't know like how else to explain it because my folks, I would be more mad at myself than they would if I brought home, you know, a B report card or something like that. So when you talk about your proclivity towards academic achievement, why did you weight that more heavily? Or is it like an identity that you built around academics or like being like the smart kid or? That may, you may have hit on something there where it was part of my identity. And it kind of started early on where you standardized test these kids really early. And so you get these tests back and you're like, according to this test, you're smarter than 99% of your peers. It made this identity that like, uh, you are intelligent, you can figure this stuff out, which was good and bad, because you know, there were a few years there where I kind of had like a, a chip on my shoulder. And like, I would joke that you know, I wish I was half as smart now as I was at 16. Nick had high expectations for himself. While his familial structure had influence on his drive, his desire to excel academically was largely internally motivated. Of course, he was still pushed by external forces, namely the ego reassurance that came from seemingly definitive standardized test scores. Every A confirmed his identity as the smart kid, whereas a red B could be a catastrophe of earth-shattering proportions. In reflection, Nick acknowledges the harm that may have come from placing such emphasis on arbitrary test scores. Outside the classroom, he'd soon learned that absolute measurements of success should be substituted with an attitude based in self-improvement. You had this investment in your intelligence. Did you feel any responsibility to like show achievement in other areas of your life? I mean, early on, it was just like Little League and sports-related stuff. For one, 
and actually it's like the inspiration for Side Hustle Nation was an old baseball coach of mine who was like, look, you know, you're going to have bad days at the plate. You're going to have bad days in the field, but hustle never slumps. This is one element of your game that you can control. It's like your effort that you put forward. And that's something that really stuck with me both you know, on the field and and in business and in life in general, it's like you can always do your best. You can't half-ass it because other people out there won't be doing that. You know, that was definitely one that stuck with me. And then uh, the other sport that I became semi-serious at was swimming. Early on, like I knew how to swim. That was the extent of my swimming skills. And, you know, I'd be getting kind of like bummed out. Like, why is everybody so much faster than me? And dad, you know, pull me aside. Is like, look, you know, you're only ever really racing against yourself. You know, did you beat your time from the last time you swam that event? Like if you did, then, you know, you're getting better. That's improvement. Nick was taught to beat his greatest rival himself. Swimming is an individual sport, and for someone so inwardly driven, this appears to be a perfect fit. Nick could focus on self-improvement. His best may have been sixth place out of six racers, but he was the Michael Phelps breaking his own records. While he wouldn't always be the best, he could always do his best and act with intentionality to improve his situation each day. This intentionality extended to Nick's understanding of money. I think mom and dad, like they always instilled this frugality, like being intentional with with their spending. And that was something they passed on to my brother and I as well. And so when the time naturally came of like, well, we want to buy stuff. They're like, well, do you have any money? We're like, no. They're like, well, you got to earn it. this is interesting and of course they had invested in some of these early invested in some of these early like baseball card collection purchases like okay you know we'll get you a couple packs whatever you know this is what kids are into these days selling baseball cards at the end of the driveway like horrible business model because it's like what kind of uh, traffic is coming by and your only customers are your your friends who are like equally broke so it was not super well thought out didn't really work very well but it was there was some marketing lessons there why didn't it work like probably for those reasons and then it was like This is interesting, but the dollars maybe are more interesting. (laughs) While these business decisions may not have always been successful in an absolute sense, Nick was always improving upon his personal best, always making a little more money, a little more profit with each hustle. As you approached college, what were you thinking? Yeah, it was that was a stressful part of it for me because I didn't know what you know what I wanted to be when I grew up and to a certain extent like still don't so it's like always like I hate that question like what do you want to be when you grow up what do you want to be how about excited like I want to be excited about the work that I'm doing I want to be excited about the the life that I'm living while his peers were arbitrarily choosing a career out of thin air Nick was far more focused on how his career path would make him feel Nick directed his life with intention, knowing the rest would fall into place. And while college meant relinquishing some of his structure, it presented him with perspective. First quarter of uh, college, I'm taking this intro to microeconomics class, Econ 200. And the only reason I'm in that class is because it's a prereq for this marketing class that I really wanted to take, which sounded interesting. And my uh, my instructor for this class is Yoram Bowman, who calls himself 
the world's first and only stand-up economist. Thanks for coming out and supporting live comedy. I stand before you, ladies and gentlemen, as the world's first and only stand-up economist. My dad told me I was crazy. Your obviously said, you can't be a stand-up economist. There's no demand. <laughs> It's super nerdy, but like I think he's a genuinely funny dude. That econ class, you know, really opened up my eyes. Like, well, you know, you know, people respond to incentives, and you know, here's how decision making works. That was cool. Kind of set me down the path of being a business major instead of you know pursuing this media path. With the help of his stand-up economist professor, Nick realized he preferred business to media. The seeds of entrepreneurship were growing and pushing against the soil he'd soon have an opportunity to break ground and enter the entrepreneurial scene. Did you get to apply those lessons? Yeah, so I'm sitting in another pre-business class and this woman comes in and she gives her a little pitch in front of the class and says, hey, have, have I got an opportunity for you. You're gonna learn uh, you know, marketing, you're gonna learn sales, you're gonna learn entrepreneurship and finance and budgeting and hiring and firing and customer service is like, this sounds like a dream internship for any like pre-business student. Tell me more. And they don't reveal to you until you're several stages into the interview process that, oh, by the way, it's painting houses. By that time, you're kind of invested, but you're like, okay, this is kind of compelling. Like this checks a lot of boxes for experience that I think would be valuable and interesting and rewarding. On top of that, there's a profit motive. They said like their average intern makes six or $7,000 over the course of the summer. So it's like, okay, I'm listening. This isn't something that I had necessarily considered doing. Like, let me give this a shot. If it sucks, I don't have to continue it. But the painting business was a really important turning point for me because it was this taste of working for profits and not wages. It was this taste of responsibility, everything being on your shoulders. Mistakes are going to happen, but it's on you to make it right. And there were some incredibly long weeks. You know, I'm sitting there like stripping and scrubbing overspray off of this deck. And it's like my buddies are out at the lake and having fun with their summer but i think it was a really important experience while painting houses all summer had given nick far more business acumen than initially expected he was ready to hang up the brush and move on to the next adventure perhaps most importantly he took with him a desire to work for profits instead of wages he learned that he didn't have to sell his time for money he could leverage his experience and knowledge to create income independent from time the implementation of this lesson materialized when Nick stumbled upon the monetary potential of the internet in an unlikely place, a shoe store. My buddy actually pointed me to a classified ad in our student newspaper. It's like, hey, this company's looking for a marketing intern. You should go check it out. This was a family-owned brick-and-mortar shoe store in Seattle that had the wild and crazy idea in the early days of the internet to throw some of their like backroom inventory online and see what would happen. So by the time I came on, the online portion of their business had taken off by leaps and bounds. And so they're like, hey, would you come on? You know, we could use some help in managing our pay-per-click ad spending, in managing our affiliate program. 
it was pretty cool to kind of be given the keys to some of these campaigns at the same time like turning around and seeing like how their affiliate program worked which was other people kind of getting paid a commission to sell their products and then at the same time to be able to take a trip up to the the warehouse which is no longer you know the back room of the shoe store but like this full-blown warehouse and i was like okay this is they're, they're moving some inventory out of this place the realization that this was serious did that reframe where you thought your life would go it was eye-opening from that standpoint of like, you know, here's something that is leveraged in the sense that like they probably had 30 employees and you're like, man, if you can support all of this staff and meanwhile, the sales come in like relatively automated. What ended up happening after the internship was over was I became an affiliate of this company and said like, okay, let me try my hand at using what I learned in terms of driving traffic and keyword specific marketing. Could I drive profitable traffic as an affiliate, even if I'm only getting 15% of the sale instead of, you know, whatever margin is in the product. The advent of an internet marketplace was an eye-opening experience for Nick. He saw how a single program could, with limited human intervention, drive enough sales to employ a fully staffed team and turn a profit. He was excited to see whether he could apply the skills he had learned to drive sales to near Amazonian levels, or at the very least, pay rent and have some pocket money. In the early days, how it worked was you could set your ad budget as low as a dollar a day, which I did, and said, okay, I would like to buy ads on these very specific keywords. An example would be like New Balance 991, their flagship running shoe. So I was going after like even more obscure stuff where it's like, you know, maybe five people a day are looking for this thing. But if they are, they're kind of at the end of their buying cycle. They've decided this is the shoe for me. Where can I find the best price? I would create text ads for these very specific keyword searches. I would do my own research on where you could find the best price. And I would use my affiliate link for those companies in the text ad. It was just to kind of test out like, okay, would people click on this? And could it be profitable on the affiliate commission level? If I paid a dollar worth of clicks, could I end up with $2 worth of commission? Within a few months, it was probably making two to $400 a month, which was enough to, I think my rent was like 400 bucks in the basement of this gross old house. Um, it was really motivating to see that. It was in Good to Great, Jim Collins talks about firing bullets before firing cannonballs. Hi there, Jim Collins here, and I want to share another thought with you about the building of great companies. They do this by firing bullets to find new things that will work, and when they get calibration, firing a cannonball that becomes a big extension of the flywheel. So for example, you might have... These little text link ads are the bullets, right? It's like calibrate, calibrate, calibrate. Okay, got it. Now fire up the cannonballs, right? That's when you go all in. It's just a matter of scale and kind of optimizing. Like if you can make 200 bucks, you can make 2,000. Nick was making money. It wasn't wages, it was profit. But here was the hiccup. At that moment, he didn't see the potential. Sure, he was making a couple hundred bucks a month, but to him, it wasn't anything more than a basement business. Most likely, it would never see the light of day. So he followed the well-trodden post-graduation path and pursued a more conventional career. 
you were getting this traction, a couple hundred dollars, but graduation was around the corner. What were your thoughts on your next move? Because there's something promising here, but is it promising enough? I definitely didn't see it as promising enough, at least at that time. And part of that was just like, dude, you spent four years uh, on tuition here and now you're not even going to use your degree for anything. Like, what was what was the point of that? So I did, did end up taking a job with Ford, uh, the car company, which moved me from uh, Washington State to kind of Washington, D.C. area. this is taking off right as you're graduating college. And then it seems like the natural step is just, let's try to make this work. But then there's this sudden right turn to something more conventional and safe. Was that really the main motivating factor? It definitely was a factor. I mean, there was probably some parental expectations of what you're supposed to do post-graduation. The truth is probably at the time of graduation, I didn't know how I was going to you know, scale this from two to four hundred dollars a month to two to four thousand dollars a month. That path wasn't kind of yet known to me. I always kind of had it in my mind that I wanted to be doing my own thing. I just didn't know that I could be doing it right away, if that makes sense. I mean there's probably some survivorship bias too. It's like, hey, of course, you know, of course it was all gonna work out. But it's like at the time you don't you don't really know. Which goes into the the side hustle mentality of like, ah, keep it keep it small, keep it low risk. Post-graduation, I went to Costa Rica volunteering at a, uh, like a Habitat for Humanity project. I go to this internet cafe on the way back to my homestay and like log in and check my sales. That was my really first taste of passive income because it was like, I haven't been working on this. I haven't been touching this stuff yet. My ads are still running. My commissions are still coming in. And I was like, this is pretty cool. Like, maybe there is something to this. Do you think there was fear involved in, in not making that full plunge immediately? Yeah, I mean, there's always fear involved. Like, how, how am I going to pay the bills? What if this flops? What if Google comes around and says, this isn't going to work for us anymore? I don't even know if the thought process was that advanced or if it was just like, no, you you go to school, you get a job. Like, that's what you're supposed to do. And the only one that I had a serious offer from was Ford, even though I didn't really know anything about the car business or particularly care about cars. I remember my dad kind of questioning this move, but he was like, you don't care about cars. Like, why do you want to go work at a car company? And in hindsight, like that's a, that's a fair question. what he was supposed to do. But the setup for a conventional job at Ford seemed destined to be finite. You can hear the push and pull of two ways of life, one with sun-soaked Costa Rican beaches, pina coladas, internet cafes, and passive income, and one more conventional. What drove Nick to settle for a job in a field that he knew and cared little about? Was it fear of the unknown? Was it societal expectations? Maybe it was stability. Living in a first world country driven by capitalism 
there is an unconscious force pressing down like an invisible hand. This invisible hand guides us, gently steering us in the direction of a traditional career and the comfort it provides. Do you ever wonder why parents tell their children they should be doctors as opposed to artists? It all comes back to stability. We are a product of our society, shaped into a cog of capitalism. Nick got caught in that cycle. Like so many of us, this work-to-live mentality was second nature. Ford whisked him away to an unfamiliar city and put him to work. So the game plan for the company, at least at that time, was to displace kids from where they grew up and move them to somewhere else with the theory being, if we get them out of their comfort zone, out of their existing networks, they will be more loyal to the company because that's all they'll know. In a way, it was true because like most of my friends were, were from work. But it also backfired in the sense that like I had more free time on nights and weekends, especially like weeknights, where it's like, all right, you know, what's it going to be? You know, playing Halo with my buddies back at home on Xbox Live? Is it going to be watching TV? Or is it going to be trying to like make something of this little fledgling shoe operation that I had? And that was the path that I chose. It's like, okay, I have my taste of validation here. What's it going to take to turn this into a real living day job killing income stream? We'll be right back after this break. We've recently been getting some more listeners, but for some reason, we haven't seen much of an increase in our podcast ratings. So to understand a little more, I called Best Buy and tried to figure out what's going on with the ratings. Thanks for calling Geek Squad and Cotton and this is Agent Lewis. How may I help you? I was looking at a Yeti blue condenser microphone with a 4.9 star rating. But a Best Buy customer who goes by the name of Sunnyboy682 rated the mic one star. I just wish there was like a way that I could be certain of what I was getting. Like, you know, when I listen to my favorite podcast, Finding Founders, it only has five star reviews. So it's whenever it's one of those things that someone could easily just do like a one star or they could do a five star if they wanted to just because they like the name of it. When you say um, like the name people, of it, do you like the name of that podcast, like Finding Founders? What is it? Finding Founders. Do you like that name? Like, would you give that five stars? I mean, I do like the name. It's catchy. Yeah. Um, kind of so has too. a rhythm to it, I guess. Yeah. I like the name Finding Founders, too. And guess what? It's super easy to leave a review. It takes less than 30 seconds. So if you're listening right now and you haven't given Finding Founders a five-star review, I'd be eternally grateful if you took a few seconds and wrote us a review. It really helps and allows us to get better guests. Don't forget to subscribe and share with a friend. Now, back to the podcast. As you spent these late nights working on this website, did you notice a turning point? So it was just like running my normal monthly reports. And, you know, here's what I spent on ads. Here's kind of the estimated earnings on the affiliate side. And you subtract them to find the spread or your profit. And I was like, oh, wow, you know, I'm good. Everything else is gravy. I remember thinking of that a specific phrase, like my entire paycheck is gravy. And from that point on, I could take it or leave it. Like, I don't need this job. This job doesn't need me. It was a position of power that most entry-level employees don't have. And that was the power of the side hustle. What comes with this power? 
it's the power to walk away. And the tipping point came in the form of like, hey, we're having another round of layoffs and they can be voluntary or involuntary, your choice. I was like, uh, you know, I, I will raise my hand. You know, I would hate to see somebody lose their job who truly needs it. And secondly, like, I'm having a lot more fun working on this other stuff. And so it's like, that, that was a good a time as any, you know, from having one foot out the door to having both feet. Was that a pretty easy decision for you to make or was it difficult? I mean, it was still difficult for some of the factors that we talked about, like the fear and the expectations and, you know, jumping ship in the middle of an impending financial meltdown. So now we're up to summer 2008. And so it was like, I don't know, like, is this really the best move? Can I cut my own paycheck? What I did have going for me was a track record of revenue going back probably two plus years at that point, where at least in recent months, it was covering my fixed expenses. And so I was like, okay probably hadn't replaced my day job salary at that time, which was around 50 grand a year. But I could see and was reasonably confident that with an extra 40, 50 hours a week of time to dedicate to it, like I could get it there because that's what I was seeing. Like if I could spend the weekend pounding away, building out new ads for the new seasonal inventory, like I would see the benefit of that for the next, you know, six to eight weeks in terms uh, on the revenue side. So I was like, okay, I think I can get there. There's never going to be a better time. So let's, let's do this. And I was out to dinner with my boss and it's, it's still, I was, it was probably like quarter of the way through my second beer before I got up the nerve to be like, ah, you know what, I, I'm out of here. And he's like, okay, congrats, you know, congratulate. I don't know if he congratulated me, but he was like, okay, you know, send me an email. Like I need it in writing. And, and it was like this weight off of my shoulders. We were up in Eureka, California. It was like six hours away from, from home and from the home office and stuff. I just remember driving home the following day, like feel like I still had a couple of weeks left of work, but I just felt like a free man. And it was, it was a pretty good feeling. Nick was a free man. And this was because he spent his free time creating a self-sustaining auxiliary income. Although it seemed like financial suicide to quit a job that provided stable income at the height of an economic recession, it was the right move for Nick. He was escaping the corporate machine. Despite Ford's efforts to mold his employees into loyal subjects, Nick had found an escape from their system. Free time is dangerous to an organization dependent on control. And Nick milked all the free time he was given. Working relentlessly to grow his online shoe business, Nick seized the opportunity to build something for himself. Everything was pointing in the direction of this online business, from the layoffs to increasingly steady income coming from this business. But his break from Ford wasn't going to be as clean as he thought. In fact, his vision of soaking up the summer sun sipping margaritas was far from the turbulent reality he was going to face. My first day of, of self-employment, I have, you know, visions of the four-hour work week in my head, like margaritas on the beach. Like I have broken out of the system of all days. The server decides to crash for one, which was bad, bad enough, but like, okay, pause stuff and take a walk. You know, maybe it'll be better when we get back. During that time, Google decides to crawl my advertising account for what they call their quality guidelines. And they say, hey, Nick, you know what? Your account no longer meets our uh, quality guidelines. You can't advertise with us anymore. 
you know, you go through the seven stages of anger and denial, and you're like, oh, I think there's probably something wrong. And they're like, no, for real, like you're just a crappy affiliate site. We don't allow your type of advertisers. You know, your sole purpose is to drive traffic to other sites. Like Google, look in the mirror. It was this like crazy stressful point of having literally like just quit my job and not necessarily like burned bridges, but like, all right, I'm going to make a go of this as a full-time entrepreneur. And 80% of the traffic, 80% of the revenue is gone in an instant. What we ended up doing over the course of that summer was probably investing another 15 grand into redesigning these landing pages to add more written content, some internal links to different categories. And then I get this email three months later and this big uh, capital expense later, looks like we made an error. You're good to go. Of course, the site is valuable. Like otherwise it wouldn't be making sales. Otherwise people wouldn't be clicking on it. Thankfully, we've been keeping the database up with the latest inventory. And so once they flipped the switch back on, it was just like, you know, was able to ramp up really quickly from there. Nick got the business running again through sheer will. I think when entrepreneurs take the plunge and quit their day job, it's a fragile place. You don't know what's going to happen next. You don't have anyone telling you what to do. And there's not a lot of experience bathing and sitting with this uncertainty. To be hit immediately with a total shutdown of a business for bureaucratic reasons, that must have been a heavy load to bear. But Nick had an understanding of himself that would allow him to persevere through this crisis. He knew he was finally pursuing a lifestyle in which he could infuse his passion. That's what got him through this tough time. He knew that this was the life he wanted to lead. So all he had to do was find solutions to the problems that arose. And it worked. His business was thriving. So 2009 was probably the record year for the shoe business. It was, you know, well over six figures. You know, I was retired at 25. Like this, this is what I pictured when I had been retired. Like I was still working on the business almost every day, but I had the freedom to cut out and go skiing on a Tuesday and still make money. And like, you know, hitting refresh on the sales reports during like Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Like this is really cool. Like it was, it was definitely a fun year, but it didn't last for a few reasons. State legislature, it kind of had affiliate sites in their crosshairs for one reason, and that reason was taxes. They were losing boatloads of tax revenue to e-commerce because of this old uh, Supreme Court decision that said, if your company does not have a physical location, does not have nexus, then you don't have to collect the sales tax uh, on that order. I will hand it to the state lawmakers because what they did was actually pretty creative. The loophole that they found was like, yes, big out-of-state retailer, we understand you do not have an office here, you do not have a warehouse here, but what you do have here are affiliates, and that constitutes nexus. And of course, the, the retailer's response is like, okay, so we can't have affiliates in California, we'll just <laughs> X out all our affiliates in California. And all the affiliates are like, oh, we were kind of relying on that income, guys. Like, what's how you're kind of caught in the middle of this, uh, you know, battle of behemoths. And, you know, I remember driving up to Sacramento and like, you know, kind of pleading the case, lobbying on behalf of small businesses. That's up on top of this Capitol Dome, that lady that stands for liberty. He can stand on his own two feet, free and decent. I ended up renting an apartment in Nevada, like just up at State Line in Lake Tahoe. And, 
you know, reestablishing a new corporation there. It ended up being thankfully very short term, but it was just another distraction from kind of the day to day, you know, actual running and growing the business. Just when he thought he was in the green, while he was making money and having time to go skiing on Tuesdays, he was faced with another setback. But this momentary setback actually served as a wake-up call. He realized his business could dwindle and die. It wouldn't last forever. He would have to diversify if he was to maintain his income long-term. Yeah, so 2011 was a low year. 2012 rebounded a little bit um, under the new brand. But during that time, like I was always kind of had this diversification in the back of my mind, like after having been slapped by Google once, like I tried out to create a wine related site. One is a virtual assistant directory and review platform called virtualassistantassistant.com. And the second project was Side Hustle Nation, which started in 2013. And that was just my attempt at building a personal brand in kind of the entrepreneurship online business space, trying to bring the narrative of this lower risk type of entrepreneurship into the limelight rather than the Silicon Valley raise venture capital um, type of stuff. What's up, Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because busy does not equal effective. So I got the domain for hundred bucks, uh, my hundred dollar startup, and then started the podcast at the same time. So like I watched the tutorial videos, I uh, ordered the microphone kit, and then it, and then it kind of sat there. It's like none of this, nothing's going to happen until you like schedule schedule an interview. And so the first few guests were just you know people in my personal network. And it was the inertia of getting started. And then I was like, okay, did I did I just commit myself to doing this every week? But again, going back to thinking of myself as a writer first, like, okay, I'm going to pound out blog content. I'm going to try and keep the shoe business running in the background. And then I'm going to do these interviews once a week. And what ended up happening was the podcast within the first year had grown like I think three times faster than the blog. And so I was like, okay, maybe there's something to this. Maybe I can safely scale back the writing and really double down on the audio component. There was a whole world of on-demand audio for Nick to conquer. However, he was hesitant to jump into the world of podcasting. As someone with a more introverted personality, Nick wasn't used to putting himself out there. Talking to people was hard enough, and hearing your voice memorialized in stone is something else entirely. But once he got over his initial inhibitions, he realized podcasting wasn't just about himself. It was about the message he wanted to deliver. Nick's goal was to build a personal brand and become a trusted advocate for average people like himself who weren't running these massive companies, but were living a lifestyle outside the norm, a lifestyle of an entrepreneur. When most people think of entrepreneurs, they think of Silicon Valley. Can these tech stocks keep going up? They think of these tech giants run by the likes of Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos. For the year. I like Amazon right that here. Compares, of course, to the likes of, I mean, Nick wanted to break that stigma. As a small business owner, he paled in comparison to Facebook and Amazon, but that doesn't change the fact that he worked just as hard, risking just as much as any other entrepreneur. An entrepreneur is not defined by market cap or valuation or investment, but I think it's instead defined by lifestyle. Are you building something new? Are you building a lifestyle that creates freedom of expression? This personal branding was exciting, 
but he still had a shoe side hustle. And it was becoming increasingly difficult to maintain a profit margin. As you saw success in Side Hustle Nation, how did you feel when you were winding down Shoe Sniper? So in that last year, we tried a bunch of different things to try to breathe new life into it. Over the course of almost 10 years of, of running this in various forms, margin got narrower. What we initially tried to do was just kind of like 80-20 the crap out of the business. Like, um, and by that, I mean, you know, we had like three or 400,000 products on the site, and it was probably even worse than 80-20. Probably 95% of those were never searched for. It's so like, what if we could somehow like strip all that stuff away? Like, it just didn't work. Like, it was kind of painful to shut it down, especially considering what it could have sold for. You know, let's let's turn around and focus on this side hustle stuff and some of the other side hustle projects. But to scale his podcast, he needed to let go of his shoe business, his first entrepreneurial endeavor. They say you never forget your first. And for Nick, there was definitely a sense of loss upon parting with his first business. But for him, it was a mutual parting. It was time for him to move and grow. There was nothing else he could do to salvage a relationship that had already begun to deteriorate. Instead of dwelling on the past, Nick looked to the future. It seems like you're like diversified. You have a bunch of things going on simultaneously. Where are you now with everything and like specifically Side Hustle Nation? I mean, the main focus is the blog and podcast. The blog has shifted from kind of personal journey type of content to more keyword focused type of content, like search intent type of content. It really doubled down on on the podcast because it's like, here is something that in a lot of ways can take less time to produce than, you know, a 8,000 word epic guide to whatever on the blog. And on top of that, if somebody's going to spend 30, 40, 50 minutes with you in their earbuds and they're going to do it week after week after week, like that's such a deeper relationship than, you know, somebody skimming the bullet points in your blog post. So you're focused on the podcast. What next? Uh, we talk about that uh, a lot here in our house. Like, are you going to do another 400 of these episodes? Like, uh, I don't know. As long as it's fun, I guess I can see myself continuing it. I'm really grateful to have kind of reached a point where I don't feel the need to continually step on the gas, which has been really helpful during quarantine time and two kids at home. So I've been able to scale back work hours accordingly. And even though there's always more projects, there's always more stuff like I want to do, like recognizing like they're never going to be this age again. Obviously, I would hope it wouldn't take a global pandemic for me to realize this, but like, what was I doing before? That was so much more important, you know, that I was sending these guys to preschool. So recognizing that, uh, really grateful to have the time leveraged operation that I have to be able to work from home, to be able to spend time with those guys. That's been the focus, you know, so far this year. It's key to point out that Nick is a family man with a wife and kids. Money for him has always been a symbol of stability more than success. It wasn't about how much he made, but how he could provide for his loved ones while still having freedom. And now Nick was at a point where he didn't have to step on the gas anymore. He has the luxury to explore without having to worry about that next paycheck. And best of all, he was his own boss. He decided when and where he wants to work. He has the best of both worlds, a job that he was passionate about and a schedule that gave him the flexibility to spend time with his family. 
So probably the biggest thing to keep in mind is, uh, at least what's helpful for me, is to position any project, side hustle, business, like position it as an experiment in your mind, which gives yourself the idea to think like a scientist and recognize that an experiment never really fails. Maybe a test tube like blows up in your face, but it's like, okay, back to the starting board, you know, back to a new hypothesis. Like, well, that one didn't work. Let's try it the other way. And my friend kind of put it this way. It's like, if you can keep your startup costs low, if you can keep your risks low, then it, it becomes kind of a matter of sample size, as he phrased it. Like, you could be wrong 99 times out of 100, but if you have that one business idea that hits, it erases all of those failures and then some because you had such low risk in those. I think what's interesting about Nick is he isn't your classic bombastic entrepreneur. He's introverted, humble, meticulous. He shows a version of entrepreneurship that isn't flashy, but it still provides a place for passion and flexibility. At some level, he seems more authentic. This small-scale ad hoc entrepreneurship is not without adversity, but it feels more attainable, more friendly, more within reach. And Nick is bridging that gap. Like Nick said, be helpful first. Embracing that mentality, he created his podcast, Side Hustle Nation, with the intent of documenting his process and helping people who are interested in the art of the side hustle. Nick has worn many hats, from being a family man to an entrepreneur, and now a podcaster. And thanks to his hustle, he was finally able to take his own advice. Work for profits, not wages. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Adrian Tapia leads the editing team with Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, and Dharma Shaw. Phoebe Sajor leads the design team with Annie Liu, James Barton, Charlotte Isidore, Rachel Dang, and Maddie Bozen. Sahej Sandhu leads the outreach team with Jessica Lin, Sasha Ivanova, and Roma Bedeker. Sophie Davies leads the writing team with Joyce Mock, Dan O'Nissen, and Elizabeth Bowen. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.